1: I believe strongly in trying to push perfume more towards the arts. I, certainly what I do, I look at it as an art form. It's the same as music and poetry and literature. It's it's just has this different materials, but you can do the same thing with it.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler.
3: And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn.
2: Karen, who have you got for us today?
3: So for this episode, I talked to David Seth Maltz and Kavi Maltz of the New York-based fragrance company, DS and Durga.
2: Oh, so this time we have perfumers. That is totally fascinating. A a new profession to profile here on Mm -hmm. Working. Do you have a favorite scent by them?
3: There are two that I really, really like. Um, I like Debaser and Rose Atlantic. Debaser is a very figgy scent, and Rose Atlantic is a really lovely, sweet floral
2: Huh. I mean, I know that they are a small company. That many of our listeners maybe like that name DS and Durga doesn't trigger anything for them. But if you're in New York and you're listening to this, you <laughs> may recognize their ads that have been plastered on like every wall in the city for their new scent. Bistro Waters. Uh, when I walk my dog, Chili, I pass by you know a <laughs> wall that has like 20 posters for Bistro Waters in it. So, so that's them if, if, if you're in New York and you haven't heard of them before. Anyway, what do our Slate Plus listeners have in store for them this week?
3: For the Plus segment, we talk about kind of more of their products because they don't only do perfumes. They do other scented products like lotions and candles. And we talk about the difference between creating a perfume and creating one of those other products.
2: And if you are a Slate Plus listener, you can get that little bonus at the end of this week's episode. And if you're not a Slate Plus listener, I mean, what are you waiting for? Slate Plus members get bonus segments to every episode of Working. They get full bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. They get full access behind the paywall so they can read everything on Slate. They get a delightful weekly newsletter and they get to feel good about themselves because they support everything we do right here on Working. You can go to slate.com slash Working Plus to sign up today. It's only one dollar for the first month. All right, now it's time for Karen's conversation with David Seth and Kavi Boltz.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
3: Hello, Kavi and David. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been such a huge admirer of your scents and your fragrances for such a long time. I'm very excited to speak with you.
1: Thanks so much. We're psyched to be here.
3: Thank you for having us, Karen. So I'll start with a pretty broad question, I guess, which is even prior to the founding of this company, how and when did each of you become interested, whether it was on a very kind of cursory level or not, in, pre- in perfumes and fragrances?
1: I won a bottle of Pierre Cardin when I was six years old at a camp raffle. I think it's like the only time I've ever won a raffle. (laughs) And, you know, it was like 1986 and it was like this little slim black bottle with the red. And I was just, you know, enchanted by it. And then I got really interested in colognes and stuff and wore them throughout childhood. You know, we had like the sports fragrances of the 80s and then like the 90s, like the watery melon stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. But my first was when I was six.
4: And I've always just been into beauty and like getting ready, like the ritual of like Mm -hmm. putting on makeup. My mom was very like into glam, like growing up. And I think it's just an important part of like Indian culture, scents and Mm -hmm. always smelling good. Do
3: you have a particular memory, like David, of like the first perfume that you were into or like a first kind of scent profile that you were interested in?
4: Yeah. Um my grandmother would wear Joy by Jean Patou. And um it's like the first like scent memory that I have. And mm-hmm. um it's like on her little like dressing table in Delhi, along with like ponds, cold cream and like a lot of different like talcum powders. And <laughs> you know, that smell has always like has always stayed with me. It's still one of my favorite. I haven't smelled it in a long time, but it's beautiful, classic.
1: It does smell very like Indian like soap, like fancy Indian soap.
4: Yeah. Mm. Fancy Indian soap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even the soaps in India are like all very perfumey, like Mm -hmm. rose sandalwood, you know, based on like very strong, like iconic scents so
3: david you touched upon this a little bit in your previous answer but i i did read that you sort of got into perfumes this is putting it very simply but sort of on a whim basically coming obsessed with the idea and researching and researching and on how to create a fragrance um can you tell me a little bit about those origins and then at which point this transformed from a sort of side hustle into your main enterprise
1: yeah yeah it was pretty quick um I think I'm just a very, uh, I'll go down a rabbit hole of something and get super interested in it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a musician. I write poetry. I draw. I make perfume. I feel like I could do any artistic discipline if I put my mind to it. Mm -hmm. I am a self taught perfumer, meaning no one ever trained me or anything. And so that's pretty rare in our industry. I. Kavi and I were going away a lot on the weekends, perusing used bookstores um, and just finding these old manuals for herbs and and plants and making like rudimentary products. And I was also very interested in the um, plants that were growing around us in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and then everywhere. I was just wanting to identify what they were, figure out what made them tick. And so in December of 2007, I just made a bunch of stuff and, and we... Kavi was like, oh, I'll make labels and we'll give them as gifts to friends for mm. the holidays. And they really liked them. And she was like, we should just start a business. We had a lot of friends who had started businesses like jewelry or like shoes or that that kind of thing. It was very DIY Brooklyn moment.
5: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, by February we were selling it with like Kavi was actually using the printers at her architecture firm and like hand cutting <laughs> the labels. And, you know, it took off really quickly. And as it went on, I learned more how to how to make perfume and much more about perfume and the business and everything. Right, just understanding how to do it all.
4: Mm-hmm. It was a really different time. It was pre Instagram, mm. starting a brand then. Although we didn't know that's what we were doing, because um, like the word just like wasn't in common. Use like
3: yeah,
4: you didn't use the word brand unless you were like part of like a marketing like, agency yeah. or like advertising. I mean, you, you like it just like wasn't used. And if you start a brand today, it's just like an entry point. is just it's just crazy. It's just so different. And back then, you could actually do something unique and it would get noticed just because it was a cool story and like people mm-hmm. like people weren't doing it. And I don't know if that's really the case now. I mean, I don't don't I mean, the, the competition is so fierce now. Yeah. So we just had this very. Uh, noticeable story. And it yeah. was easy to, to talk about because not many people were doing it the way we were. I
3: actually wanted to talk a little bit more about what you were saying about how basically when you started the idea of an ind- a small independent perfume company was really not the norm and really kind of a rarity. Um, can you tell me a little bit about coming up in that environment, whether you feel like, like the advantages and disadvantages of being an independent company and of having to run your own business on top of trying to stay creative with your products.
1: Well, that's the thing is, it's just a labor of love. It was all creative. Perfume is such a top-down industry. I think there's Mm -hmm. probably 400 perfumers that make 95% of the perfume in the world. So it's really like most brands are marketing the artwork of another person, like another perfumer, and ours is different. It's like a singer-songwriter, like I wrote all the songs, and these Mm. are my songs. And so (laughs) it's with perfume, I, I made them all. You know, I make all the names and the stories, and there's just a direct line going from the creator to the product that you hold in your hand. Uh, So I think that was an advantage because there's clarity of vision, right? So oftentimes, Someone might go to a perfumer and say, I really want like a fresh green fragrance or I want something that smells like uh, this trip that I went on to Bulgaria in 1984. And maybe the perfumer's never been to Bulgaria, doesn't know anything, certainly wasn't on the trip with this person. But they had this fragrance that, that they were working on that they liked that was like a vanilla, even though there was no vanilla in Bulgaria. And they're like, do you like this? Yeah. And then like, so they have to create this story that doesn't have a strong foundation in reality. And so ours is much more based upon, it smells like what it says kind of thing. Mm
4: -hmm. And in terms of business, I think like it's kind of full circle in the beginning. It was just David and I, there was very little business to do because it was so, so tiny Mm -hmm. as it grew. We had to learn a little bit about business, had to learn more as things got bigger. And now as we've gotten to a decent size, we're able to hire people who do it way better than we ever could. And now we're able to, again, focus on the creative, which is what surely our greatest contribution to, to DS and Durga is our individual creative contributions. Mm-hmm. And so we have people who do sales, who do marketing, who do all the finance and that, that was definitely for a while getting to be sort of, Not just distracting, but we were just not able to do it as well Mm -hmm. because we're not trained in it. And we tried to teach ourselves as as much as we could. Like I taught myself QuickBooks and tried to like figure out like the financial end of it. And we had to, and we were doing okay, but it's much better now that we don't have to do that end of it.
3: Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you guys have the same answer for this question or different, or if you feel this way at all, but is there a certain point where you felt like, oh, we are successful now?
1: We don't think like that for sure. We have blinders on. Like we're we're nowhere yet. No one knows who we are. So we're we're yeah. trying to just we're we're trying to get the next idea out and mm-hmm. and build and build and we're only looking ahead as, you know, I believe strongly in trying to push perfume more towards the arts. I certainly mm-hmm. what I do, I look at it as an art form, you know, that's the same as music and poetry and literature. It's it's just has this different materials, but you can do the same thing with it. And, you know, give more language to the common masses of of what a perfume is, what it can do, how it works. And so there's no resting until that's done.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's so many definitions to it. I mean, I when we first started and we were selling online and we sold a bottle of perfume, we remember thinking, if we sell a bottle every day, could you imagine? Like, we, <laughs> that would be crazy. We consider mm-hmm. that successful because... First of all, like the margins, like everything just went, you know, straight into our pockets. So it was kind of amazing. Um, Now, the definition of success, it really depends. I mean, we have like a plan in mind. We have like huge goals in mind. So until those and then, you know, those will will keep moving. Like, you know.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think like you feel small successes when you connect with uh, customers and, you know, when people can sense the fun and the joy behind it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I wanted to ask you guys about working with each other as well. Uh, My understanding of your roles is David is the principal perfumer and Kavi is the brand designer. How did you guys first talk about what, or if you even did, or if you fell into it naturally, what roles each of you wanted to take within the
4: company? It happened just like naturally, like Mm. visual was definitely my my domain and, um, Mm. Although I will say when we first started, I did try my hand at making a couple of perfumes, like just like mixing drops together quickly, quickly realized it was not my thing. And David (laughs) just had, so he's, he's self-taught and the way that, that, you know, I think not to speak for him, but the way it works is that he has definitely some natural talent, like a naturally sophisticated nose and palate. And then I think there was just like a lot of practice and research went into it, just like anything else. Like you can Mm -hmm. be sort of good at something, but then, you know, you really need to like practice it to become, you know, a pro at it. And so he just has this obsessive personality where he will really get into whatever it is, whatever it is that he's into, he'll get into it all the way. So he just sort of became obsessed with perfume, making perfume, um, practicing, you know, at any moment he has a hundred different formulas in the works. So that was always going to be his thing, mm-hmm. the perfume.
3: And sort of off the back of that question, uh, I'm curious when or how you guys see your duties overlapping, not in terms of redundancy, but like when, David, for instance, you would get a look at what or talk with Kavi about what you're thinking about the visual side of things. And for Kavi, like when you would get to like test out a scent or even just talk about the ideas that go into it. How do you guys work together?
4: We have very different working styles. David is really immediate, and I really admire it so often I think he's already by the time like I'm ready to like go on something he's already like thought of things and conceptualized things and since he's making the perfume like and part of our whole you know brand identity story is that like you're getting uh creation right from the perfumer's mind instead of Mm -hmm. a perfume that's like you know, translated like through other people and like all these middlemen and like someone's marketing it and someone's creating the words and like it has nothing to do with the person who's actually making the perfume, which is like recreating something from memory um, or imagination. So I think that he has already, by the point I get to work on it, come up with like some visuals, some colors. He, he works a lot in color. Um, you know, he, he like smells things in color. And so there's already like a lot, like a mood board, so to speak, for me to like work with. So I think that's how it often goes is he has has some words, he has some, some some ideas, some pictures, some colors. And then I kind of like translate that into something that is in our like brand language.
1: Yeah. I was going to say on, on the side of the fragrance, um, you know, a perfumer generally works with an evaluator in the Mm -hmm. industry. I mean, I, I don't, but mostly there's you, people evaluate and like help you like, you know, tinker around until it gets better. And that Kavi was like my de facto evaluator for years where she'd smell something and not like it. And, um, that's changed and grown because we have other people in the company where I'll just try to get people's opinion. But the truth is since it's a product for anyone, anyone can be an evaluator. So there are definitely, Definitely, many times where I've in a rabbit hole, and I think I've created the best thing ever, and I bring it (laughs) to someone, and it's like the joke is like for two years I've been working on this, like I've made like 150 versions, like this is the best I can do. What do you think of it? And someone's like, Oh yeah, it's kind of sweet, you know. Like people (laughs) will just fucking rip it apart in three seconds, but you have to be okay with that because I'm not making it just for me. You know, it's 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 for everyone. So sometimes. We just had one that was going to be our spring launch. I worked for over a year, I think about 2 years on it, finally brought in all of the details to making this like thing the best I could do and like everyone was like, "Yeah, hey, whatever." And so, we're not coming out with it, you know. <laughs>
3: And you talked a little bit about this in your previous answers, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about how a scent begins, because it seems like there's kind of various points of inspiration that you pull from, whether, as you've said, whether it's a picture or a phrase or even maybe a name that you think will go for a perfume. What would you say, like, is the genesis of a perfume or can it really just come from anywhere for you?
1: I all day, like if I think of something that came through like reading or traveling or walking around or watching a movie or something, I'm like, oh, it'd be so cool to make a perfume based upon that idea. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a name, but usually it's just more like the idea. And then I will, you know, make versions of it and then try to like trickle it down to the tightest name possible to, uh, so that you know what it is from the name. There is also things that I'm working on, like where I just, you know, I have this vanilla fragrance that I've worked on It's not influenced by anything around where I was. It's like the beauty of the material itself. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it has no name and it might never come out, but it will at some point rear its head and make sense to come out as something.
2: We'll be back with Karen's conversation with David Seth Maltz and Kavi Maltz after this. Hey there, Worketeers, Isaac Butler here. I just wanted to say that if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you're getting us through the Apple Podcast app, if you could do us a favor and rate and review the podcast, it really helps us find new listeners. Uh, if you're on Overcast, you can just click the little star next to this podcast. Uh, also, while I've got your attention... We really want to hear from you. As you probably know by now, we have a new sister show called Working Overtime. It airs every other week and it features advice for our listeners and sometimes advice for us, mainly in response to emails and voicemails that we get from you. So drop us a line at workingitslate.com or give us a call at 304-933-WORK to share your ideas, your creative challenges, your creative successes, guests you might want to have, things you want to hear pontificate about whatever we'd really love to hear from you all right now back to karen's conversation with david seth and kavi moltz
3: i'm asking this because i have no idea how it works and i'm sure most of our listeners won't either but on a very basic level how does a perfume get made
1: okay all a perfume is at the end of the day this is all it is it's the difference in weights between aromatic materials. Nothing else. That's all a perfume is, right? So it just means it's and it's weight, not volume, because volume changes based upon pressure and heat and stuff. So mm-hmm. what you just weigh out differences between things and you sort of like make an, a sculpture or kind of like a house of cards. Um you how things interact. You're like, oh yeah, this. And, and you know, I use my nose a lot if I'm trying to recreate something from the real world. You know, I could smell, like, this is an orange piece of origami that my son made. So I could definitely mm-hmm. make something that smells orange so mm-hmm. that it looks like this. And I can make something that has that dry, papery smell to it. E- even if it doesn't have much of a real smell, it's because if you were going to paint a picture of that, you would not just use orange to paint that. You would also use, like, blacks and whites and clear stuff and yellows and greens to get in the shades uh, and tones that change in 3 d so a mm-hmm. perfume is like taking these materials and making it into 3 d so like you know there's also very strict regulations of what can go in a perfume, but if you want mm-hmm. a perfume that smells like roses and you buy rose oil uh, it doesn't rose oil doesn 't smell just like roses i mean it 's quite close in a lot of ways, but roses have such a kaleidoscopic. Throw that, that you know there's some that are super spicy and some that are lemony and some that are violety, lots of different things going on. And um so you could either make a rose that's trying to smell like a real rose, you know, like a cover song. So if I were to take my band and like cover a Rolling Stone song, even if we freaking nailed it, it's not never gonna sound like the Rolling Stones because we're not them. So mm-hmm. it becomes like a cover of what they made. So you can make a cover song of a rose uh using the aromatic. Aroma chemicals that are present in rows, but then imagine you just have the idea, and you are like, oh, I wonder what a blue rose would smell like because, you know, mm-hmm. there's not really blue roses out there. So you make a blue rose or you're like, oh, this is a rose made of metal or this is a mm-hmm. rose that is growing underneath this bush secretly in a garden where, like, this crazy thing happened. And you can start to, like, tell the story but using the aromatic materials. And if you know how to use them, th- th- it's like you're understanding the whites and the blacks and the clears and all, all that stuff that goes into paints.
3: Mm-hmm. And Kavi, I wanted to talk a little bit about the brand design as well, because maybe I'm biased because I I really do love your products, but I feel like I can instantly recognize a Diaz and Durga product. And I want to know, like, how much has the design changed? Like, since, uh, as you guys mentioned, you just made these for your friends to give out and hand cut these labels. How much has that changed? What has sort of been your, I guess, driving influence or driving kind of idea for how to visually get across
4: what you're doing? It's changed so much um, because when we started, we just, we didn't know what we were doing. Like we didn't know what this was going to be. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know like the rules of like design and branding that like, you know, like brand, 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 you have to like drive the logo home and this and that. I I just didn't know those things in the beginning, but actually I think it's a little bit, um, it it shows this kind of rough around the edges. Like uh, it's a little refreshing, I think, because often you'll look at a brand and it's just like a bunch of boxes that look exactly the same mm-hmm. and you don't even know what's in what. And so I, I like that our products are recognizable from each other as mm-hmm. well. Um, and hopefully there's, there's some like visual language that ties them together. And I think I also do that to keep myself stimulated because it would just, mm-hmm. there, there's nothing involved then. if if you're just, you're just putting your logo on like the same Thing, like over and over it's not fun for yeah. us it's not creatively challenging so um you know we've started using drawings and we'll just use chances with every new product to make it look a little bit different um even if it's not what marketing 101 says it's just more stimulating for us yeah creatively
1: yeah and we have these studio juices where I make a hundred bottles like a few times a year and kavi gets to do whatever yeah. she wants on the label colors craziness even like different shapes and uh that keeps our creative juices flowing. Because as you said, yeah, we all we have a million things we want to do. And it's a a platform for us to get those off our chest.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, the studio juices were actually something that I wanted to bring up because the idea is so fun, like having this limited edition fragrance. Um, and I wanted to ask what inspired you to start doing it? Like, was it really like trying to figure out what the best way was to kind of keep yourself stimulated creatively? And then also how or if you think about them differently from the perfumes that you make permanently available?
1: Yeah, I can give you my spiel on it. I would say, first and foremost, I just make so many things. And mm-hmm. you uh, you can't come out with 10 perfumes a year. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. just beautiful. Be too overwhelming. There's no bandwidth for the team to do it. And like just marketing wise, you'd be like, what is all this? So this is a way that I can, I, I'm probably not going to come out with like a magnolia scent. That's all about magnolias, but there's this yellow magnolia that grows in Brooklyn that I think is so astounding that blooms for one week, two weeks, one weekish every year. And it's actually was invented in the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. And I was like, oh, I got to make one of these. Mm-hmm. So I made it, made a hundred bottles. I mean, it's great. It's out there. I did it. It's, I can check it off uh, my list and you know, it's an interesting way for us to do something like streetwear drops where they're just a limited moment in time that if you want to be part of, you can, but it's not eternal. And so in that regards, I, it doesn't have to have the same level of, I, I better make sure that my spring launch, a lot of people love the scent of it. You know, like it's pretty important. Like I, y- there's only so wild you can go with, with a scent, but in a hundred drop where it's more like an art piece like yeah maybe Mm -hmm. it's not something you're going to want to wear as an everyday fragrance but it's a little bit more like an object of art where where you have this thing that smells so interesting and tells such an interesting story that you can interact with uh but it doesn't have to like slam it for everyone Mm
3: mm-hmm And there's one other specific scent I wanted to talk about, which is cowboy grass. Um, David, you've described this as being the blueprint for how you think about perfume. So first, can you describe for our listeners what it smells like, as best you can anyway, and then can you elaborate on why and how it's become this touchstone for you?
1: I I don't even know if I think there is a a, a DS and Derga blueprint per se, but... It
4: is the first thing that you made.
1: Okay, yeah. Well, cowboy grass is... um... It's a vetiver fragrance. It smells like uh, like the sort of rolling uh, grasslands of the West. Um, I had been in a band, traveled extensively throughout the country, and like you interact with these flowering, grassy fields, and you realize that they're such a important part of the identity of America. Cowboys going over, and uh, listen, we made this. I made this one. I didn't even know how to make perfume. It's like,
4: yeah, I want to, I want to tell the story of where the blueprint comment might, might come from if you, okay. if you have facts of it. So um, it was when our first sense, I guess our first scent when we first started making perfume, like we said, we were part of this like DIY time in Brooklyn where you like did everything yourself. Like mm-hmm. you were going to make clothes. You wanted to like grow the sheep that made the yarn and then like, you know, dye the yarn yourself. It was just that, that kind of, like, <laughs> we want to do everything from beginning to end. So we bought a distiller, not knowing what the hell we were doing. We bought a distiller and started, thought we were going to distill our own oils and our own raw materials. Mm -hmm. So David was like distilling these like Persian limes and rose petals. And we were making these raw materials and making like a tincture out of them, like soaking them in alcohol, using that as the base that he would then add oils to. And it was just like this very like homegrown, like, way to, to do things. It was not like informed by, by much, except just like his imagination of how you could like, you know, concentrate scent into, into a liquid, but it was like this very nuanced textured liquid juice that came out of it. Um, and that's how Pablo got started eventually, like it got streamlined to not contain all those processes. Um, but I think it was just, Maybe when you said it was like the blueprint of it, it was just this different way of thinking about how to make perfume. Like you made up that technique that that didn't come from anywhere. You were just thinking of like how to infuse things, just like based on your knowledge of like cooking and food, maybe and just like flavors in general, you made up this way to get the the scent into the bottle that, that yeah. I think is yours uniquely.
1: It's mm-hmm. one of the first it, it always, uh, you know, it's like one of the ones we're known for It's not an easy fragrance, though. There's, like, a challengingness to it. I think whenever you are messing around with herbs because there's, like, basil and thyme and things in it that are kind of, like, strong, Mm -hmm. it's a crazier scent. But it is one of the better sellers for sure.
3: And so while we're on the topic of how to create perfume and how to create fragrance, I also wanted to ask about the... I guess, very practical necessity of sourcing. How do you source the materials? How much does that affect what you're able to create? Because part of it is supply and demand. Sometimes you might not be able to get the material that you want and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, okay, this is super important because necessity is the mother of invention. So if you wanted to make this amazing dish uh, and your friends are coming over in an hour and you couldn't run to the store Mm -hmm. and you have a bunch of spices but you don't have one of the ones that's in there, if you know what you're doing, you got to figure out how to build that profile in that dish. Right. And so in fragrance, you know, thankfully what chemists are doing is like the bulk of the work for perfumers. It's like, they build the stuff that we use to create. So if you need to have something that smells like blood or metal (laughs) or the ocean, like we have that stuff now, you know, you Mm -hmm. just need to know how to use it. And so, rather than being i'll never hopefully i try not to get too hung up on like oh man i wish i just had something that smelled like that i go and i build it like i think that if you if you showed me a picture of anything i could make something that approximates that picture in a fragrance with what i have um you know where things are sourced i work with Fermanish, one of the greatest mm-hmm. companies in the world, they're inventing new things all the time from like biotechnology. We just came out with a fragrance called Bistro Waters that uses mm-hmm. an actual green pepper note that the, it's an extract of green pepper. It's not like an chemical it, it is green pepper extract. And so that's a new horizon. So all of a sudden you can start playing with new things and figuring out uh, different facets of materials. There's the practical side of natural materials that they only grow in certain places. You know, you can't have like jasmine from Canada. It's, it. you know, although I'm sure there's plants, if there's a cottage industry in a place that wants to make oil and go through all the regulatory hoops, because um, regulations is the other thing too. You can't just mm. put as much jasmine, rose, vetiver as you want into your perfume. It's highly regulated how much you can use of things.
3: And I have a question for, as people who are so entrenched in fragrance and in scent, is there a fragrance among your line that you would recommend for a first-time perfume buyer for someone who is just dipping their foot into the world of fragrance
1: yeah i i mean well first of all you could take our quiz on our website that just asks Mm -hmm. you five (laughs) questions and then they're not about fragrance at all and then it can like link you into a category where you can buy a customizable sample set of the four fragrances that that i think would work for you based on the questions you answered and that one i feel like is like 85 percent foolproof there are some people who are impervious to questions like this myself being one of them (laughs) um but it's a great place to start we have the greatest hits thing that is Mm -hmm. you know has six of our best juices in it so that's a great place to to start our fragrance i don't know what is our best seller and it's nondescript and modern enough that i feel like people just love it and it can be like worn alone or over anything or with other oils and stuff so the i think that those three would be great starting points
3: and I want to ask, just because the theme of this podcast is the creative process and something that we tend to talk about a lot is experiencing writer's block. Um, and I'm curious, like, what you would call the equivalent of that sensation for creating a scent, for trying to design visually. Like, do you experience that kind of block? How do you get over it?
4: <laughs> don't,
1: don't be too cocky about this, David. <laughs> I mean, he's no, like no, opposite. not cocky opposite. God willing you know like I hope it never happens, but I just I've,
4: flows through him from directly from the heavens.
1: I'm not short of ideas you know mm. hopefully again, God willing just open, create you know I meditate a lot, create a channel and things come through. so I have a lot of ideas. That being said, I'm not short of ideas, but in making them come to life like I said with the musk that I, or the scent that I worked on for two years that yeah. ended up being a failure. There are times where I just, like, can't figure out, like, I can't get what what I want. Or it won't last long enough. And my skin eats fragrance, so mine's, like, a bad one to try on sometimes. Or people who I respect don't see my vision and I have to listen to them. Mm -hmm. So it can be super frustrating. I mean, there's this one note that eluded me for years and years and years that I just figured out, like, a couple months ago. I think getting – if you have writer's block, right – you got to immerse yourself in things and that's mm-hmm. where it will come back. And it's the same thing. So I'll go to the lab. I work with Furman issues like the, you know, one of the biggest fragrance companies in the world, I'll go into the lab and just start smelling materials. And, and then I'm like, Oh wow. Yeah. Like I didn't even realize like this has this, this has that. And so they are just so busy getting lost in materials that sooner than later you start ideas start coming, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, just consuming valuable media, right? Like meditating, reading, works of the masters, uh, great artists, you know, like.
5: Yeah, I
4: mean, it's definitely not bullshit that we need to, like, get out, you know, get away from their desks, from our desks and travel, go do things, take an afternoon, go do something, see mm-hmm. some art, talk to people, meet, what, whatever you're doing, any kind of stimulation, like something's going to come of it. So, um mm-hmm. And we do that. It's important. It truly is. And I, and I find with design, especially for, for DS and Durga, because it is just like a little bit rough around the edges. If I'm having trouble with something, I'm probably overthinking it. And the simplest solution mm-hmm. is the best one. And even if it's like mm-hmm. off the cuff, all the better. Just, yeah. That's, that's, First like, takes in recording of the, are often the best. Yeah. yeah. It's just part of the brand DNA. Like i thought of this i came up with it i put it on paper and now it's on the shelf and like that's that's how we started and like i think we'd like to keep that thread Mm -hmm. in there a
1: little bit that's so true
3: thank you guys so so much for your time it's been wonderful chatting with you thank you thank you
4: karen you too
2: When I started listening to this week's episode, I had this reaction that that was maybe a little snobby. I was like, perfumers? On a show about artists and creativity? What? Just hear me out here. You won me over very quickly. Obviously, this was some dumb ingrained prejudice I had, because obviously the creative process has many things in common throughout all disciplines. David and Kavi are obviously doing creative work. They're creating works of art in those bottles. They have a process that's very creative. I have no idea where I was coming from, but uh, <laughs> I just wanted to be honest with you about my my own ingrained prejudices here uh, in case they're shared by some of our listeners. I mean, I think
3: that's the fun thing about working, uh, not to toot our own horn, but everything is a creative process when you really get down to brass tacks about right. it. And in this case, perfumery is a process that's really involved and more complicated than you might think, let alone starting your own business around it.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, everything I know about perfuming is from the Patrick Susskind novel, Perfume, that Tom <laughs> Twykver turned into a movie with Ben Whishaw. So I think it's that you have a supernatural... Um, uh, nose that can scent anything and then you murder people, right? That's, that's no, that's not <laughs> how it works. Okay. Anyway, uh, I was fascinated that David thinks of his work as a narrative art form specifically, and mm-hmm. the perfume can do the same thing as literature and and I, forgive me for holding forth here. But, but the reason why this blew my mind is that mm-hmm. scent is obviously the primary sense that is receiving that art. And, and right. you and me are writers And writing is actually a very weird thing to think about if you, like, take a step back. Because you're taking the words that people hear, you're turning them into shapes that look nothing like those sounds, but they still stand in for those sounds. And then people are going to take them in through their eyes, and then in their brain, it's going to, like, substitute for the thing that they would normally hear and translate it. It's totally bizarre. But we completely take it for granted because we've been doing it for thousands Mm -hmm. of years. We do not take storytelling through scent for granted because... He's the first person I've ever heard talk about that, and it's a really radical way to think about what he does. How do you tell a story through a smell?
3: So I know a little bit about perfumes as an enthusiast, but I'm no—I'm by no means an expert. But my understanding of telling a story through scent exists on kind of in, in two different ways. The first is that I think it's sort of reminiscent of the conversation that I had with fashion designer Jasmine Chang, where she said that there are specific inspirations behind some of the pieces that she makes, like Versailles but she knows that someone who's looking at the piece might not necessarily think of the same thing. I think perfume is really similar in that you can have a scent that evokes a really specific sense memory in you, but will evoke something totally different or nothing at all in somebody else. Um, And the second way in which I sort of see perfume as a storytelling is the way that a perfume will change throughout the day. It's why when you look at a perfume's information, you'll see that it has top notes, heart notes, base notes, and the notes that you smell will change throughout the day. And the term dry down actually exists specifically to talk about the phenomenon, that there are notes that will last the longest after a perfume is dried on your skin. And it's basically what the perfume will smell like at the end of the day. Because it'll be different from when you first sprayed it. And on top of all that, a perfume smells different on every person because your body chemistry will react to it differently.
2: This makes this job sound impossible to me. All those different (laughs) variables you have to be thinking about at all times. You know, I really thought they had an incredibly healthy attitude towards ideas not working out. Um, yeah. It's something that I really wanted to highlight because I struggle with this so big time. <laughs> in fact, I, I often won't attempt an idea because I'm so afraid of it not working out. And, you know, mm-hmm. they really highlighted this part of the artist dilemma, which is we spend so much longer on our work than the viewer or reader or in their case, smeller uh, spends experiencing it. You know, the author Jeanette Winterson wrote this essay in the 90s about how that imbalance between the amount of time the artist spends and the audience spends really means that the reader should always defer to the author, which I find completely ridiculous. Whereas David and Kavi's attitude is like, actually you have to listen to the casual audience member because they're the ones who actually have to experience your work and, and want to do it and want to spend more time with it and all this stuff. And it's interesting because I think also some of that difference is like the difference between someone who's running a business and someone who isn't, you know, might have different, you know, attitudes towards the audience's experience. I I was just wondering about what you make of their attitude and, and how you think about this with your own work.
3: I mean, I think it's kind of influenced by the fact that they are perfumers, which is almost closer to, I think, cooking than any other art form in that it's really, really subjective. Again, a perfume will smell different on everyone. And then even when you're spraying it on sample paper, different people like different smells. And it's not necessarily like liking some comedies and not others. Because if you hate the smell of like cilantro or something, and then you smell something with a cilantro note in there, it's not like the thing is bad. It's just that you personally don't like that. Right. And then I think the interesting thing about perfume is that depending on the scent that you ultimately want to make, it can smell quote-unquote bad or like a hard fragrance to wear. Um, There's one bottle that I own um, from Folia Plusieurs that was inspired by the movie the Yorgos Lanthimos movie, The Lobster. And it's supposed to smell evocative of that movie. And I think the easiest way I would describe it is that it smells sort of like rotting greenery. And you're taking a really big gamble putting a smell like that out into the world. Wait, wait, wait. wait.
2: You you Occasionally wear a perfume that smells like compost. You're, I have like not.
3: A- w- I would not describe it as compost. It's definitely <laughs> a greener um, and more like salty smell than that. Oh got
2: I got it. Okay.
3: But what I'm trying to say is like I don't think it's entirely my attitude with my work and that I think you do need to be aware of your audience to some degree if not necessarily deferring to them especially if you're in a position where money is something you have to think about which I know (laughs) is a topic that we keep coming back to on this show but it's really really hard to separate that from art because like If you come from wealth, it's easy to not worry about that at all. But if you don't or if you're in a position where you have to worry about your financial situation, then it will ultimately affect the art that you're working on to some degree or your life to some degree.
2: Right. How could it not? Right. It's like money Mm -hmm. and time. Everything yeah. relates to those things, whether you want it to or or not. And speaking of money, I <laughs> loved your question about success and I loved Kavi's response. I just thought it was mm-hmm. so honest that the goalposts for success keep changing and now yeah. they have a set of goalposts that are really far off and and who knows if they'll attain them or not. And that's part of being ambitious. And, you know, it reminded me that I may have told this story on the show before. I don't remember. But like a week after The World Only Spins Forward came out. And keep in mind, that's my first book. Mm -hmm. I co-wrote it with Dan, who I love, who's a good friend. It was like a really joyous experience the whole time. And it was really a dream come true. You know, I've been working Mm -hmm. really hard to write a book and get a book published. That was a really important goal for me. And a week after it came out, this very neurotic voice in my head said, you know... Lots of people write one book. You're still not a real writer until you write your second. Uh. And I was just like, from what pit of self-loathing did that burble up? And how can I banish it back? Like, go away, go away, go away. You know, and luckily I somehow managed to beat it back into the swamps and it has not come back since I feel like I'm a a real writer. But, you know, do you have a clear idea of what success looks like? And, you know, when you achieve something that you wanted to achieve, like your first books coming out soon, do you actually sort of self-consciously figure out like, okay, what's the next goal? I'm going to set that next goal really consciously. I'm like, how, how do you figure out where to set your goalposts?
3: uh first of all i'm really glad that you banished that voice to the swamp because it's such a stupid idea like i feel like i've heard it in so many different iterations, and it's like no like yeah. completing one thing no matter what it is is Total. still like an accomplishment it still counts for something i um, know a
2: lot of writers having shared this story with with a few writers i know a lot of writers who felt this way after their first book oh boy out, which is so weird so i'm warning you in case it happens to you you accomplish something huge <laughs> don't listen to that voice
3: I think I'll I'll feel good enough when I have it in my hands. Um, That said, I do feel, I don't know if I think about it in terms of goals. Like I agree in that once you achieve something, you start thinking about the next thing that you want to do. And I think that's just a part of being a creative person. It's like, oh, I finished writing this pilot. Like, what do I want to do next? And it's not necessarily that I feel like I want to accomplish something and more just like you keep having ideas or maybe you don't and you just have like a resting period, which is fine also. And I guess in that sense, I think about success with in two different ways at the risk of repeating my answer to your previous question I of course see success on the one hand as we've discussed as like finishing this thing that you've worked on creating this thing but on the other hand it's also thinking about it in terms of like your financial situation again I'm sort of repeating what I'm saying but that is what's going to have a big effect on what kind of projects you can do how much of your time you can spend on the stuff that you really want to do, whether or not that you're you're able to say no to something that you might not want to do, but would need the money for in any other situation.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's such a complicated thing, especially, I think, for people like you and me who have a lot of different work things going on yeah. at once, you know, that like, OK, so there's like for me, it's like, OK, there's teaching, there's freelancing, there's writing books, there's maybe other Projects, Right. And it's like, what does success look like in that nexus? Yeah, of things because I can think about success in each one of them. Like I want to sell another book, for example, you know what I mean? But like, mm-hmm. um, what all those things together might look like is something that I'm just constantly, constantly tinkering with.
3: Yeah, it's hard.
2: Well, that's all the time we have for the show this week. If you've enjoyed it, please do not forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And because our producer Cameron has threatened to pitch shift my voice if I don't do it, here is your Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get full access behind the paywall on Slate. They get bonus segments of episodes like this one. They get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And they get full access behind the paywall of our mothership, Slate.com you can go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today and support everything we do right here on working.
3: Thank you so much to David Seth molds and Kavi molds for being our guests this week. And special thanks to our delightfully scented producer, Cameron Drews tune in next week for ISIS conversation with Brian lay, Andy lay and Daniel ma, the fight choreographers of everything everywhere all at once until then get back to work.